So have you ever used valet service for your car? You know, maybe downtown at a fancy restaurant, maybe at a, a Hanson concert, you know, just somewhere you are, you know, using a, a valet service, you know, for your car. Well, there's a neighborhood in the Tribeca neighborhood in New York City. They are kicking that up a notch, and they're going to provide valet service for your kid's stroller. Yeah, yeah, the stroller is heading to the valet. Sarah Robinson is one of the co-founders of a, a new spot in the Tribeca area. As a parent, she said she kept looking around the community, and there wasn't really anything that was strategically designed for families. And this is what she said. There was no place to sit but the floor, and I would have paid someone $100 for a cup of coffee. As a parent, it's so polarizing. You could either do something for your children and your own brain is turned off, or you could take your kid to a restaurant and be stressed out the whole time. Someone is always disappointed. So Sarah and her fellow co-founder, uh, Noria Morales, decided to create a place that was a family space. And a family can walk into this space and they can check their stroller at the door. And the, the valet service will oil the wheels and it will fully detail the stroller. I, I don't even know what that means, you know. I just I picture a 1978 Mercury Zephyr getting detailed and I'm like, all right, I guess they do the same thing. You know, they, they detail the stroller. And then when the parent walks out, they've got a brand new stroller almost. The theme of the whole place changes every season, so they, they redecorate everything in the whole place. There's book clubs, there's, there's lessons on just about anything that you can imagine, and there's, there's play areas and there's parent areas. There's even a place where you can get some coffee, all of it in, in one stop. But there's no child care. You can't send your kids off to one place. It is a truly family-designed location. And most of the areas, cell phones are banned. So you can't candy crush while you're playing with your kids, you know. It's a, it's a whole other world. According to Fortune Magazine, a family membership is $450 a month. Yeah, that's a lot of play, right? That might be some good coffee up in there. The place is about 8,000 square feet, and it can hold up to 300 families. And what is the name of this family space? Well, it's called The Wonder. <laughs> I mean, that's a hard name to live up to, right? I mean, a play area is, is The Wonder. A new uh, Dugal leads one of the funds investing in The Wonder, and she describes the concept like this. There needs to be a space where families have the opportunity not just for their children, but to socially spend time with each other. It's tied back to the rise of alternative community groups of people connecting on interest rather than something like religion. Connecting on interest rather than something like religion. But what if the most interesting connection you could ever make was not with something that was like religion, but was with actual religion? Or maybe put another way, what if there was a way for your soul to be immensely satisfied because there's nothing else in the world that compares to what is satisfying you. That the hope and the peace and the love and the joy that you live in hour after hour and day after day, there's nothing that compares to it. What if, as cool as it is, the wonder of all wonders is not getting your stroller detailed 
in the valet stroller spot. But, but what if the wonder of all wonders is having your heart and your mind fully detailed with the love and the grace and the mercy and the power of the greatest treasure in the universe? That's wonder. And what kind of wonder is it? Well, we're going to see if we can find out. About 250 miles from where the first Olympics were held in Athens, Greece, a little settlement sprung up. Had a lot of great natural springs. It had some silver mines and some gold mines. And it sat, this little settlement, on the main road from Asia to the rest of the Western Roman world. It's a pretty cool spot. And so it is not surprising that in 356, Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great, decided to come into this little settlement and and make his own city there. And he did, and he called it Philippi. About 400 years after he founded the city, the Apostle Paul came to Philippi, and he came to tell them this amazing great news about Jesus. And people got saved, a church was started, and then about 15 years later, Paul wrote a letter back to the folks at Philippi. And this is one of the things he wrote in his letter. Philippians 3, beginning with verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Now, in verses 1 through 3, Paul had just got through warning the folks in the church about the dangers of false teachers. And he described these false teachers like this. They were dogs, workers of evil, mutilators of flesh. Now, dogs, workers of evil, mutilators of flesh, didn't really have a Mother's Day vibe to it, you know? I'm thinking, maybe that's not a good Mother's Day sermon, you know? So, so we're going to hold off, and we're going to circle back to verses 1 through 3 at the end of this series, and the way it's scheduled out, it looks like that dogs, workers of flesh, muti- workers of evil, mutilators of flesh is going to end up being on, on Father's Day. So, you know, it seems a little more macho. It seems like it, it fits there a little bit. So, you know, so it'll, it'll be a good Father's Day. And if it's not on Father's Day, you still need to come because verses 1 through 3 will help you decide whether or not you need to fire me. You know, so, I mean, it's, it's a good text. You know, you, you might want to be here that Sunday. It'll be fun. <laughs> I'm the only pastor in America that just said, yeah, it's a sermon about whether or not you fire me. It'll be fun. Let me just quickly sum up what Paul says about the the false teacher dogs, though. They were pastors or or preachers. They were church staff. They were musicians. They were Sunday school teachers. They were volunteers in the children's ministry, the youth ministry, or the men's ministry, or the women's ministry. They were members of the personnel committee or the finance committee or the hostess committee or the building and grounds committee or whatever other committees that are out there. They They were just people in the church. They were in some position of leadership. And the attitude that they had, according to Paul, was very consistent. And the attitude was this. They only looked out for themselves. But that was their attitude. They they looked out for themselves. And Paul said that's the opposite of Christianity. It's the opposite of the gospel. Paul said true worshipers of Jesus do not just look out for themselves. True worshipers of Jesus do not focus on confidence in themselves and are not obsessed with their opinions or their agendas. And so Paul, he he illustrates that now in, in kind of some vivid language, even a little bit in some sarcastic language. Listen to what he says in verse 4. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. 
All right, show of hands. Who in here is perfect? Anybody perfect? Anybody never done anything wrong? Anybody always done everything right? Going once, going twice, nobody, nobody, nobody. I just knew somebody would probably raise their hand just for fun. We're not perfect, right? I mean, we're not. The only person that's perfect is, is Jesus. But Paul, Paul seems to be throwing his hat in the ring here, right? He seems to be saying, hey, if there's a way for somebody to get right with God, I'm the guy who could get right with God. If, if we're talking about what it means to be a perfectly successful Christian, yeah, I, I'm your guy. So Paul, in verses 1 through 3, he says, hey, you know what? These false teachers, they're dangerous because they have all this confidence in themselves. And then he turns around a sentence later and says, you know what? I got a lot of confidence in myself. He sounds delusional, right? I mean, he sounds like a hypocrite, but he's not. What Paul's doing is he's, he's trying to help us see the danger of having confidence in ourselves. He's trying to help us see that, that it's a foolish thing to have confidence in ourselves. I mean, think about it. The reason it's foolish is it's foolish to say, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm a pretty good Christian. Man, my Christian resume, pretty good. You, you should check it out. Why is that foolish? Well, it's foolish because we can always find somebody who's doing better. <laughs> we can always find somebody else who's, who's a better Christian than we are. In this case, Paul would say, yep, it's me. <laughs> if you're looking for the better Christian, it's me. Paul's saying, look, if, if salvation is defined by who you are, where you come from, who your family is, and what you've done in life, Paul says, I'm the grand prize winner. He says, if we're going to use human standards to measure what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a successful Christian, Paul says, I'm off the charts. You need to look at me. Now, why in the world would he make such wild accusations? Well, he gives us a bunch of reasons, some official credentials, so to speak. Here's his first credential, verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision began in Genesis 18 when when God had this conversation with Abraham. It was a radical surgical removal that that stood as a symbol and also as a vivid reminder to God's people that the eternal dangers of sin are real and the eternal rescue of God is real. But by the time Paul was born, people were taking some liberties with the whole eight-day things. Some people were getting circumcised at 13 and maybe even older, bless their heart. But not Paul. No. Paul's mom and dad, they did everything just like God told Abraham. So Paul says, look, I'm going to tell you why I'm the perfect Christian. You, You need to just listen to my credentials. And the first one is My circumcision sets me apart as a devout part of this holy, God-fearing Jewish community. That's his first credential. Listen to his second one, verse 5. He's also of the people of Israel. Paul was a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was in the nation of Israel by blood. He was born into it. So he was circumcised, setting himself apart as an Israelite. He was born into the nation of Israel. Now listen to his third one, of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was the smallest of all the tribes, but it, it had all these unique and, and special privileges. We, we might could compare them to the Rockefellers or the Kennedys or, or the Bush family, families that were, were blessed and they were blessed to serve. So Paul, he had some good genealogy. Man, his, his Ancestry.com just lit up. He had great, great, great stuff. 
So all of this stuff is coming from his parents. He, he has this inheritance, so to speak, of his circumcision. He's been born into the nation of Israel, and he's in the tribe of Benjamin, the, the special place. And listen to his next credential. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So there were Greek Jews and there were Hebrew Jews. The Greek Jews, they'd wear skinny jeans and Crocs to church. You know, they didn't care. They, they were good. They fit in with the society. They blended in anywhere that they went. They were fine. But the Hebrew Jews, they didn't blend. Nah, they, they didn't blend. They wore a suit and tie to the water slide. There was no blending in with the culture. They were very down the line. Paul was like that. He was a full-blooded Hebrew. He was Hebrew on his father's side. He was Hebrew on his mother's side. If an American family was, was growing up overseas somewhere, they were living abroad and, and their young children were born in, in a foreign country, they would be living in this foreign country. They'd live in this foreign land. But those American parents, because they're from America, those kids would still know something about their heritage in America. They'd know something about their family. They'd know something about the language. Paul didn't grow up in Jerusalem, but his parents made sure that he knew about the heritage, that he knew about the family, that he knew about the language. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So that's what he got from his parents. Circumcision, born into the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. He had two fantastic Hebrew parents that brought him up in the Hebrew ways. So Paul says, man, look at me. If you're looking for what a good Christian is, man, I'm the guy. But it's not just what he inherited from his parents. Paul's got a little something-something of his own that he also can brag and boast about. Listen as he continues with his credentials in verse 5. As to the law of Pharisee, Paul didn't wish that he could be with the cool kids. He was with the cool kids. Paul was in the inner circle of the in-crowd of all in-crowds. He was in with the Pharisees. The word Pharisee means one separated, one set apart. See, what the Pharisees did was they set themselves apart from the rest of culture. Boy, you, you knew they were not like other people in the world. Not necessarily because of their attitude or their spirit, because of what they were doing on the outside, what they, what they wore and where they went and, and how they functioned. It was, it was very outer religion. They were trying to obey 600 different religious laws. That was their goal. Make sure they kept more than 600 different laws. Man, I, I don't know where I'm going to be in 15 minutes. How in the world could I keep 600 laws? Some of them would even tithe on their spices. Their spices. You know you are the real deal when you drop a little Ziploc bag of 10% of your cinnamon in the offering plate on Sunday morning. That's, that's real Christianity right there. That's what they did. They followed the rules. You know, some of that's still out there today. There, there's some people that would say true religion means you have to speak in tongues. True religion means you have to be a part of a certain denomination. True religion says you have to be obsessed with a, a certain theological view. True religion says that you have to vote for a certain political party, and you've got to sing certain kinds of music, and you've got to wear certain kinds of clothes. But true religion, so to speak, in the Scriptures is pretty simple. It is the worship and the adoration, and the following, and the obedience of and to Jesus. Worshiping Jesus, period. The Pharisees, they were deeply committed. They were deeply devoted, but they were not deeply committed, and they were not deeply devoted to Jesus. And Paul, and he was just like them. See, what they were doing is they were putting their ultimate glory on their religion instead of on God. 
that they were living a life and they thought, man, we're, we're living this good, holy life, but actually they weren't because the glory of God was taking a backseat to the glory of their own religion. Paul was sold out and devoted to this separated way of living, and how do we know? Listen to his next credential. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was so devoted to his religion. He, he was so devoted to his religious traditions among the Pharisees that it drove him to persecute and torture and execute Christians because he was absolutely convinced that they were a threat to the true religion of God. That's how devoted he was. He had zeal. He had passion. But he didn't have any zeal, and he didn't have any passion for Jesus. His zeal and his passion was very religious. It seemed very holy, but it was completely wrong. And actually, it was on the path to hell. His next credential sounds a little over the top. Verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, Paul just used the word blameless. Is he saying that he's, he's never sinned, that he's perfect? No. But he is saying this, that he had some perfect attendance when it came to those 600 rules. You know, he, he was doing pretty good on those things. You, you wouldn't find anybody that would say, Paul, oh, yeah, man, I can tell you some stories about that guy. Man, when we were in high school, no, there were no stories. Paul kept the rules. He, he did the right thing. It, it was the only way that he functioned. You know, we don't keep all the rules, and we still kind of think like that. <laughs> Stephen Cole gave a version of what, what we might sound like in this context. Yeah, I'm good enough because I'm better than my no-good neighbor who drinks beer and watches sports on TV every Sunday. I'm better than him. I usually go to church. I don't get drunk, at least not on Sunday. I don't gamble. Sure, I buy an occasional lottery ticket, but I don't gamble as much as Emma and Ralph next door. Man, they're at the casino all the time. I don't hit my wife. We yell a lot, but I've never hit her. I pay my taxes. Well, at least most of what I owe. Nobody declares everything. Is, is that really what life is about, just, just trying to, to live out some religious rules? Just trying to be better than the next guy or? Jesus said one day to some very religious folks, Matthew 15, 8 and 9, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Religion and Christianity are, are not the same thing. You can sing Christian songs, and, and you can say that you're a Christian, and you can come and join Christians for church, but that will not make you a Christian. Unless God has, has rescued and redeemed and saved Paul understood how real that was. See, Paul used to be blind and dead in his sin. Paul was killing Christians. He was blind and dead in his sin. But then one day, his religious eyes got closed. And his spiritual eyes were opened. Jesus saved him, rescued him, redeemed him, justified him. 
Paul's life completely changed. And what changed the most in his life was his confidence. See, Paul had so much confidence in himself. Really what Paul was doing was Paul had been worshiping Paul. And when he got saved, Paul quit worshiping Paul. Listen to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Almost in an instant, Paul's belief in himself, it disappeared. But the wonder of rejection overwhelmed him. The, the beauty of rejecting his cool spiritual resume got very exciting. And he changed gears and he began to believe in and rely on and trust in and cling to Jesus as his salvation and his treasure. And everything changed. Paul began to look back and he goes, you know, it doesn't matter that I've been circumcised. It doesn't matter that I was born into the nation of Israel. It doesn't matter that I was born into the tribe of Benjamin. It doesn't matter that I had two great Hebrew parents that brought me up in the Hebrew ways. The only thing that matters is whether or not I've been born into the family of God. And he said, oh, that's happened now. God saved me. He's brought me into his true family. Paul began to look at all those 600 laws, and he was like, man, even if I kept those 600, there's one out there I don't even know about. You know, there's something out there that I'm going to fail at. He started looking at the law, and he went, oh, the law is showing me I can't keep it. The law is showing me that I, I must be saved, that I need a Savior. He started looking at his religious zeal, his zeal that led him to, to persecute other Christians. <laughs> and that didn't impress God. That didn't endear him to God. In fact, it was through persecution and death that Jesus died so that Paul could be saved from his zeal, so that Paul could be saved from his religion. His zeal was of no value. And keeping all his regulations, being blameless, man, it didn't measure up. Paul started to see that without Christ, he would have drowned in an eternal lake of his blame and his guilt and his condemnation. In other words, every single reason that Paul had been putting confidence in himself, every single reason that Paul said, you know what, I, I'm pretty good, I'm, I'm going to heaven, everything's solid, I'm, I'm pretty much the perfect Christian. Paul looked at all of those things and he realized, oh man, those things scream to me that I'm lost and dead. The picture is kind of like a ledger sheet in accounting. You got losses and you got gains. And, and Paul had all these things on the gain side, and he switched them over to the loss side. He, he said, all of these things that I've been looking at, they, they've lost their value. Now, he's not saying they're all a waste of time, that, that anything that we do nice for other people is stupid and dumb. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, when it comes to salvation... When it comes to being right with God, when it comes to whether or not you go to heaven or whether you not go to hell, whether or not you're separated from God forever, everything boils down to not what family you were born into, not how good your religious activity is, not your heritage. 
but whether or not your heart has been saved and redeemed and rescued by Jesus. That's why Paul looked at all the gain in his life and he said, it's all loss. Now, now that I see who Jesus is, all of those things, they're, they're loss. Because he began to see that, that the only thing he desperately needed was to know Jesus and be known by Jesus. For nothing's different today. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. To know Jesus is the wonder of all wonders. So, is that your story? Is Jesus your greatest treasure? Or today, are you sitting hoping that your eternity is wrapped up in, in your parents or your grandparents and the fact that they went to church? Is your eternity wrapped up in the fact that your grandmama was a great Christian? Is your eternity wrapped up that, that you're a pretty good person and, and you work hard at your job? Listen, your heart knows something that is very true. You are not perfect and you cannot save yourself. But here's the great news. You need a Savior and there is a Savior. Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus Christ is your greatest gain. So, what does that look like in, in real life? Caroline Cobb is a wife and mom. She lives in Texas. She wrote a, a new song uh, for Mother's Day this year. It's called The Wonder. Uh, you can Google it or uh, you can look on the website later today. I'll have a link to it at the end of the, of the sermon notes. It's a beautiful song. I'm going to read a few of the lyrics in just a second. But I, I want you to hear some of the heart behind the song. This is what she says. Being a mom of three young kids has felt a bit like being thrown into a pressure cooker. Even if you're not a mom, you can feel a little bit of the pressure cooker of life, right? I struggle with losing my temper, with my words coming out in anger, and then I struggle with the sub subsequent shame, frustrated with myself that I'd fallen short yet again and failed my kids who I love. Next, I would pull myself up by my bootstraps, determined to, try to har to do, determined to try harder to do better. But inevitably, in a high-stress moment, my sin would spill out again. In this season of failing and falling, God in his kindness helped me rediscover the beauty of the gospel. I'd believed it all along, but I was functioning in motherhood as if it were not true. Can I just confess for us if you've been to the doctor this week, if you had a hard day at work, at school, if there was an argument with your spouse or your kids, you may know the gospel's real, but we sometimes live like it's not. Then she said this, as I came to the end of myself and to the place of acknowledging my utter spiritual poverty, I found that God was carrying me to the foot of the cross. He pointed me back to the good news I could never achieve or deserve. Same language from Paul, right? I got all this, all this achievement in my life. It's going to be good. But you can't achieve salvation. It was as if God took my face tenderly in his hands, looked me in the eye with love, and said, Don't you see? This is why I sent my son. In the gospel, 
He invites me to run to the wonder of the cross. Rather than wallowing in my shame or striving to make the grade as a mom, I can ask my kids for forgiveness and then point them not to a perfect mom, but to a perfect Savior. And I do it again and again because we never outgrow the gospel. Friend, you never outgrow the gospel. I told somebody this week, I said, you know, I'm 46, I'll make some mistakes. And when I'm 86, I'll still be making mistakes. I'll need the gospel over and over and over again. You know the most beautiful thing about being a Christian is that every morning his mercy and his compassion is new. And in a sense, that makes our salvation almost new. That every day we can wake up in the power and the authority of what it means to be saved all over again. See, we need the gospel over and over again. Let me read just a few of the lyrics of her song, The Wonder. When my temper is short and the day is long and my words come out in anger and I tell you I'm sorry but the moment's gone, I'm so heavy with my failure. But let me tell you, darling, where your mama, she is running, to the cross. Oh, what a wonder. All my love, just a shadow, pointing on to the hallowed, to what's deeper and wider and longer. Oh, the wonder. Oh, the wonder.